All right. Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at uh, a couple of verses, but it's not going to be the main direction, uh, the, the main um, point of our text this morning. We're not going to be focusing entirely on Romans 8 verse 9. We're going to be flipping around, and so I want you to make sure that you uh, have your Bibles ready to do that. So the title of this morning's message is Indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to read Romans 8 the end of verse 4 through verse 9. Then Romans 8, verse 4 says, Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does, uh, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Yet, however, uh, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I don't know if you've heard, but there's a new prophet and a group of prophetesses who are shaking up Christianity. They've begun to prophesy that Jesus is coming back within just a few years. Their worship includes trances, rantings, babblings, uttering strange sounds, and falling down with the shakes, uh, the Holy Spirit shakes, as they call them. They say they are helping to lead the church towards maturity through the new power that they have received through the Holy Spirit. They've named their church the New Jerusalem because they think they're recapturing and expanding what started in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Have you heard of this group yet? Well, it could refer to many different groups, really. It could be a summary of the Toronto Blessing from 1994 or the Vineyard Movement of the 1980s, maybe even in the beginnings of the Assemblies of God Movement of the 1910s. It even sounds like the Kansas City Prophets and their international house of prayer. But it's none of these. This description comes from the Montanist movement from the second century AD in Asia Minor, or what is now Turkey. One of their prophetesses, almost 1,800 years ago, wrote, Christ came to me in the likeness of a woman clothed in a bright robe, and he planted wisdom in me. Well, very early on in the church, confusion came over how the Holy Spirit works, even who the Holy Spirit is. And we understand why there's such a draw to experience something, to, to see clear evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. After all, Paul wrote in our text in verse 9, he says, you, if you are a Christian, well, you're not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And if that is true, then knowing whether or not the Holy Spirit is working in your life, is indwelling in your life, knowing whether or not the Holy Spirit permanently dwells within you, is essential. It's part of what defines all Christians. 
Now, it's easy to read a verse like verse 9 and say amen, and then put your own ideas of what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to work. It's easy to say, well, you can't see the Holy Spirit, so isn't the working and indwelling of the Holy Spirit going to be subjective, kind of different from time to time, person to person? Others run to the early church and look to Acts 2 as their model and expect the Holy Spirit to work in still more extravagant ways. But I think what's most helpful is to learn to think more biblically about the Holy Spirit. And that's our goal this morning. We're not going to stay parked in Romans chapter 8 like we normally do. We'll be looking at several scripture passages that help us first know the person of the Holy Spirit and then begin to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit. So to help structure our thoughts this morning, we're going to work through five essential questions to ask about the Holy Spirit. These are five essential questions to ask about the Holy Spirit. So you're learning to ask good questions and to find the biblical answers to those questions is part of what it means to grow as a Christian. It's what catechisms teach us to do, and I'll actually be using quite a few of our questions and answers to help us this morning. And so in addition to getting your Bibles ready to flip, I want you to look up our catechism on the church website, and it's there. So go and open up your phones, go to your uh, browser, and go to fbfarmington.org, okay? fbfarmington.org, fbfarmington.org. And then up in the top right-hand corner, there's going to be those three lines, which will get you to the menu of where to find different things. And you'll see the drop-down menu of catechism, and click on that. And then click on full catechism. And after you do that, and turn off your sound, of course, we'll uh, be looking at a couple of these uh, catechism questions as we study the Holy Spirit, and you can scroll down to question number 24. You can scroll down to question number 24. Well, our first question to ask this morning is, who is the Holy Spirit? Remember, these are five questions, and the first question is, who is the Holy Spirit? Now, there are a lot of aberrant, uh, aberrant ideas about the Holy Spirit that float around out there. I've heard some think that the Holy Spirit is the disembodied spirit of Jesus. Maybe that's why people used to call it the Holy Ghost, right? Or at least some people su suggest. Others insist that the Holy Spirit is just how we experience God today. There's not much of a distinction in their minds between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Along the way of thinking, some are convinced that God the Holy Spirit is the primary or only form that God takes today. And these people would be called modalists, and they wouldn't believe that God is Trinity. They would say that the Father is the God of the Old Testament, that the Son is the God, when, uh, the manifestation of God when he came to earth, and today the manifestation of God is the Holy Spirit. And so, therefore, God exists in three different modes, hence why they call it modalism. Modalism. 
It's actually an old heresy from the second century as well. It seeks to preserve the oneness of God, but destroys the eternal distinctions of the three persons of the triune God. And so, look at your catechism, uh, number 24. I want you to look at that question. Who is the one true God? On your phone there, number 24, who is the one true God? And the answer is, the one true God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three are one God, the same in essence, and equal in power and glory. See, the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father nor the Son. They are distinct persons, yet all together they comprise the one true God. That's what we mean by trinity or triunity. Notice it also says in that answer, it says they are the same in essence. And that's very important. That means that there's nothing that one of the triune God possesses that the other does not that makes one more important or more significant or more God than the other. They are equal in power and glory at the end of that answer. They are equal in power and glory. They all equally share the fullness of all of God's attributes. And so it's not as if the Father is just and wrathful and the Son is kind and gracious and they kind of are competing against each other. No, you see, the fullness of all of God's attributes, all that we use to describe God, is found in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons possess the fullness of deity. And then you can notice, if you have that question open, you can tap on 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It shows us that all three persons of the triune God were known and worshipped as God, even while the New Testament was being written. See, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes a benediction. It is a blessing that is meant to go forth on the people. And he mentions all three persons of the Trinity. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And of course, Matthew 28, the end of that chapter, Jesus himself tells all of his disciples to go into all the earth, making disciples, and then baptizing them in the name of what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we see very clearly the Trinity is not just some made-up concept that some early Christians developed. The Trinity is found on the lips of Jesus himself, and it is found in the pages of Scripture. So as we try to figure out who is the Holy Spirit, we have to start with the reality that the Holy Spirit is God. So let's scroll down to uh, the question number 84. Got your phones open? Go to question number 84. Question number 84 says, what do we believe about the Holy Spirit? The answer, that he is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. You can stop right there. 
Notice it says co-eternal. There never was a time when the Holy Spirit was not. He is not a created portion of this world. Nor is the Holy Spirit just another way to speak of God. He has eternally been a person of God, one of the Trinity. The answer continues. He is a distinct person, yet equal in nature, power, and glory, and should be worshipped with the Father and the Son. Now, to drive this point home, I want you to actually turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. This is one of the weightier stories from the early church. You have Ananias and Sapphira. Apparently, they're early Christians in Acts chapter 5. And this couple decides that they are going to sell property and give the proceeds of that property to the church. That was typical of what a lot of Christians were doing. Uh, Not that they were giving up everything they had. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. And then they would give it so that they could, for the good of the church. And so apparently this couple has this property and they agree that they are going to keep some of this proceeds from this property for themselves and they're going to give it to the give the rest to the church but they're going to pretend like everything that they earned from this property is going to the church and so therefore essentially lying and making themselves look amazing and holy and pious but what's fascinating is that Peter as he confronts Ananias says that his sin is lying to the holy spirit and then in the very next verse Peter says that it is an affront to God, therefore equating the Holy Spirit and God. Look at Acts chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? God. What did he say in verse 3? You've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, you've lied to God. So he's equating the Holy Spirit and God. Unless you kind of get confused about that. If I say that I stole some money from Charles, and I stole a great fortune from the Tower Fortress in England, from London. And then I would say in the next sentence, I stole from the King of England. What am I saying? Who is Charles? The King of England, right? So when we say that he's lying to the Holy Spirit, and then the very next sentence says he's lying to God, he's equating the two. The God, the Holy Spirit, is God. Clearly, Peter understood this, and so did the early church. And further, the Holy Spirit is uniquely involved in how God works in the world. We know that God has one will. It's not like they fight amongst themselves in the Trinity and trying to argue about what's the best thing to do. They have one, uh, the triune God has one purpose and plan and to direct all things. And yet each member of the Trinity is involved uniquely and distinctly in everything that happens. So a classic example is creation. In John chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, both say that God the Father made the world through the Son. But when we read Genesis chapter 1, we also see that it is by the Holy Spirit that all things are made. 
Genesis 1 verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And that word hovering is very interesting. It literally means the, the Spirit is brooding over creation as a hen broods over her nest. And the image is, is care, love, intentionality. And so the Holy Spirit then fashions this world. And as men are made from dust, it says the breath of God is breathed into them and gives them life. Well, you know what the same word for breath and spirit is? It's ruach, it's the same word in Hebrew. Breath, spirit, same word. And so the spirit of God gives them life. The breath of God, the Holy Spirit gives us life. Now, if you didn't grow up in Michigan, you might be confused between the two major public schools and public colleges in the state. You might say, oh, well, I want to go to the U, uh, U of M Spartans and wear green. Or I might want to go to Michigan State and, and cheer on the Wolverines and wear some maize and, and, uh, and dark blue, right? And there are plenty of passionate students and fans alike who would be quick to correct you even to take quite a bit of offense that you would dare mix up these historic institutions. Colors, mascots, sports teams, engineering programs can take far greater importance to us than they ought. And are there not more important identities in life? Listen, if we miss on the person of the Holy Spirit as God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, equally worthy of worship as the third person of the one true triune God, then we are not simply confusing a mascot and a few colors. We miss the very nature of God himself. If we miss the divinity of the Holy Spirit, we miss who God is, and we worship another God. A God of our own design. And so the first question to settle, who is the Holy Spirit? Second question, number two, how did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament? How did the Holy Spirit work in the Old Testament? Now we already saw how the Holy Spirit worked in creation, but certainly the Holy Spirit didn't stop working at that point. He would soften the hearts of God's people. He would convict of sin. He would empower leaders for specific tasks. But this empowering and indwelling was never permanent in the Old Testament. For example, go to Samson. This is a classic example. Go to Samson in Judges chapter 14. Go to Judges chapter 14. Samson is hardly a godly man. He was selfish, lustful, impulsive, and nobody that we would say is a uh, hero in our minds. Even though the Spirit of God empowered Samson to deliver Israel from her enemies, his life was spent walking in the flesh. He is not a good dude. So when we look at these passages, we need to notice that the Holy Spirit comes on Samson for a specific task and then apparently leaves. The end of Judges 13, verse 25, it says, And the Spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. And then, 
Again, in Judges 14, verse 6, it says, Then the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had, what he had done. And then verse 19 of chapter 14 and the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had exploited and explained the riddle. In his hot anger, he went back to his father's house. Right, and so Samson, the Holy Spirit, this is not the only time. In chapter 15, we see the same pattern. Samson had this Holy Spirit, and then he didn't. He had the Holy Spirit to uh, wreak havoc against the Philistines, to be God's instrument against the Philistines, and then he didn't, and he just went on and lived his worldly life. Well, the same thing happens with Saul, who was Israel's first king. 1 Samuel 11, verse 6, it says, The Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon Saul. And then, a couple chapters later, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, it says, The Spirit of God departs from Saul and never to return. And so the Holy Spirit, especially in the Old Testament, we realize, empowers Old Testament saints to do whatever God has for them to do, but does not permanently indwell anyone. This includes even the prophets. Nehemiah 9, verse 30 says very clearly, many years, you, speaking to God, and it's like a prayer to God, it says, many years, God, you bore with your people and warned them by your Spirit through your prophets, and yet they would not give ear. So the Spirit of God is used to maybe deliver God's people. It's used to speak to God's people through written revelation. Inspires the prophets, inspires the authors of scriptures to write his words. And so in the Old Testament, God the Holy Spirit preserves and protects his people. And the Holy Spirit speaks to his people through scriptures. But in the Old Testament, there was a hint that the Holy Spirit's ministry was about to change under the New Covenant or in the New Testament, that God the Holy Spirit would work differently. And so we come to a third question, question number three. What is different about the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament? What is different about the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament? Go and go back to your phones and look at that catechism and scroll to uh, catechism question number nine. Certainly in the New Testament, God the Holy Spirit is still responsible for giving us God's word. And so in a real sense, you hold God the Holy Spirit's word in your hand even now. You, you want to recognize what the Holy Spirit has done and continues to do? Well, you are holding the primary kind of obvious way that the Holy Spirit works and continues to work in the Bible. And the New Testament made this explicitly clear. And so we see question number nine in your catechism there. Who wrote the Bible? Men inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible using the language and the style with which they were most familiar. Using the language and the style with which they were most familiar. And so 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, it's, it's in, in there if you want to tap on it and you can see the, the reference. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says very clearly, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture 
comes from someone's own interpretation or it's a source from in a man. For no prophecy, verse 21, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke, so men are actively speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, men are actively speaking, but God, the Holy Spirit, carries them along. So it's not like the Holy Spirit takes over a writer of Scripture, puts him in a trance, and just kind of like takes, takes over his hand and does that. That's not the picture we get from this. We have a clear picture that men write using their minds, using their intentions, using the language that they know according to the personalities and uh, the, the normal means that anyone would write anything. And then the Holy Spirit carries them along and makes sure that it is exactly God's words. This concept of uh, kind of the men writing the, the scriptures in their own language is famously played out between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. You see, in 1 Peter, Peter uses an amanuensis, that is someone who would kind of dictate, uh, Peter would dictate, and this other guy would write it down, and he would kind of maybe smooth out some of the language. And so 1 Peter seems a little bit more polished in its Greek than 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, it's assumed that Peter writes this himself, and the language and style is quite different from 1 Peter. And yet we see very clearly that both 1 and 2 Peter claim to be from Peter. And the early church from the earliest days knew that they were from Peter. And so we see here that the Holy Spirit uses the men who actually wrote these letters and used their language and their style that they would have used as they wrote anything. It's that the Holy Spirit carries them along, writing exactly what God wants. You guys have heard of 2 Timothy 3.16, right? It says that the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. And that word inspired is important. You got your catechism open, go to question number 10. Go up to, uh, go down to question number 10. We see this next question. What does it mean then that the Bible is inspired? Well, it means the Holy Spirit moved the writers of Scripture to write all that God desired. And so, therefore, the Bible is God-breathed. That's what inspired means. It means breathed out by God. Every word in the original documents is exactly as God intended it to be. And so there's a sense in which you can never say that men are inspired. No, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, is the great communicator. And so if you want to know God, read and listen to the Holy Spirit's words preserved in the Bible. You want to know God's gospel and how to be saved? Know God, the Holy Spirit's words, in the Bible. God, the Holy Spirit, has worked in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to be the great spokesman of the triune God. And this concept of inspiration was clarified then in the New Testament. But there's also something different about how God, the Holy Spirit, works in the New Testament. And it was prophesied in the prophecies that talk about the New Testament or the New Covenant. So go back to look at it, Ezekiel 36. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. There's two main passages that speak of the New Covenant or this prophecy, prophesied time when the Messiah will come and God will work in a, in a new 
unique way where he will permanently forgive sins, where sacrifices will end. And this was foreign to the Old Testament. And yet the prophets speak very clearly of this, speak clearly of Jesus and this coming time in which we live, this church age. Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 are, are the primary two, but there are many others. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, is where I want you to read with me now. Look down at the text, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Is this talking just about physical water and physical cleanliness? No. He says in verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, or in other words, a living heart. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see so much there. We can unpack it, but we don't have time. The, the idea that I want you to really pick up on here is there is a dead, stony heart that everybody is born with. And in the new covenant, as a result of what Jesus has accomplished, there will be a time in which our dead, stony heart that we're born with is able to be made alive and become new through the work of God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is said, according to this verse 27, permanently dwell within you. He will put my spirit within you. No longer does God the Holy Spirit only temporarily fill people to do some special task. Under the new covenant that we live, God the Holy Spirit permanently dwells with every single Christian. This is the major difference of how God the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament compared with the Old Testament. And this returns us to where we started in Romans chapter 8. Remember what Paul said had to be true of every Christian? Romans 8, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. See, if you are a Christian, by definition, you have the Holy Spirit within. And on the one hand, this can feel like a huge burden has been lifted, right? God, the Holy Spirit, not only shows you who God is in his word, but he gives every Christian a new heart capable of obeying God. It's meant to be an encouragement to every single Christian. You are freed up to actually live a life that honors God. This is amazing, good, glorious news. But on the other hand, how many of you guys are worriers out there, right? I'm a worrier. Like, remember the time you tried out for your school's sports team or maybe the audition for your school play and, and they posted the team and the roles of the play on that dreaded bulletin board for everybody to see? You guys remember that? I don't think they do that anymore, but maybe, maybe they do. 
the idea, you know, all the people, all the boys who come and come nervously around who tried out for the baseball team or the, so- uh, the girls for the softball team or whatever the situation is, and they kind of sit there around, and there's a lot of nervous energy. Everyone's language is kind of awkward. There's some who have that false humility, like, oh, I'm probably not going to make the team, you know, it's just, not going to happen. They're kind of like working themselves up to get ready to fail. And then you got the other guy who says, I'm the best in the city. I, I'm not even going to watch them post it. I know I'm on there. I'm going to be first on the list because they're going to put this in order of best and I'm there. Okay. And you got these, all these different personalities kind of going out there. And then the thing comes out and you're like, did I make it? Did I make it? And you look and you see where you made it or if you didn't. Well, it's the same thing that happens when you throw your resume out to a dozen employers hoping it sticks, right? And you kind of you can refresh, refresh on, your, on your email a couple times a day. Did I get that back? I sent it like three minutes ago. Maybe, maybe they're going to reply, you know? And, and you kind of click on that. There's this nervous energy. Did I do enough to get on the team? Did I do enough to get on the play? Did I do enough to get the job? I think somewhere in our past we've worried about whether or not we've done enough to get what we want. And how many of you, if you're honest, aren't sure whether or not the Holy Spirit's in there? Maybe you've been around some charismatic-leaning friends, and you're like, wow, I don't get lost in my worship like that guy does. I haven't had some dream or vision of Jesus. Is the Holy Spirit there? Or maybe you just struggle. You feel like you're barely able to make the Christian team. Your skills at evangelism are lacking. Resisting temptation is kind of a struggle. Reading the Bible, I mean, I don't even know if I've ever read the Bible consistently, you might say. Praying? Maybe at meals. They're all honestly subpar in your life. And you think, have I done enough to get the Holy Spirit in? But I think that's the wrong question. A better question is question number four. How does the Holy Spirit get in? It's a slightly different focus. It's not so much whether or not I do enough to invite or even to keep the Holy Spirit within. The better question is, how actually does the Holy Spirit get in? How does the Holy Spirit tell us how the Holy Spirit gets in, right? Because the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, and the Scriptures tell us how the Holy Spirit gets in. So let's consider that rather than considering if I've done enough to get or to keep the Spirit. Perhaps is one of the most important questions we can ask, because after all, Romans 8 and 9 is clear, right? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you aren't a Christian. Behind this question is really the question, how is it that you become a Christian? And so question number four is important. How does the Holy Spirit get in? Now we're going to break down this question. We're going to have a couple of different answers. And so uh, you'll see in the next slide there that they're going to have a number of different ways that the scriptures tell us that this happens. Scroll down to question number 93. Scroll down to question number 93. Really, the starting point for how the Holy Spirit gets in is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. You see, without the Holy Spirit telling us how we can be reconciled to God in the Bible, we could never know God. We could never know eternal life. And so step one in the process of how the Holy Spirit gets in is, number one, hearing the Word of God. 
Step one in the process is hearing the word of God. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone has to hear a sermon, but it does mean that without knowing what God, the Holy Spirit, says about how to be right with God, there's no way the Holy Spirit indwells anyone. I mean, remember Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8? Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8? That is the guy who is famously known in his community for having some magical powers, and he sees the work of the apostles, and he's wowed by their power and authority that come from the Holy Spirit, and he's like, I want that. And so he goes up to the apostles and he says, let me give you some money so that you can give me this spirit, all right? And he tries to bribe him to get the spirit. And the apostles are like, absolutely not. You cannot buy. You cannot earn the Holy Spirit. His work always starts with hearing and knowing biblical truth. Not about buying anything. This is God's gospel call. See, another name for this is God's effective call. Look at question number 93. Look at question number 93. What is God's effective call? God's call always begins with the preaching of the gospel, which becomes effective as a work of the Holy Spirit that regenerates our hearts. We'll get to regeneration in a second, but the preaching of the gospel is always the starting point for the Holy Spirit's work. The preaching of the gospel is always the starting point for the Holy Spirit's work. Paul's about to ask a series of questions in Romans, Romans 10, 14. Paul says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It gets to the same point, right? You cannot become a Christian. The Holy Spirit does not enter in unless you've heard the Holy Spirit word, the Holy Spirit-inspired gospel message from the Bible. The starting point of the Spirit's work is for his words to be read, explained, and understood. So the Holy Spirit gets in through a message, not through things that you do. Well, next we see the Holy Spirit moves hearts however he wishes through the wonder of something called regeneration. Regeneration, write that word down. Regeneration means new birth. How many of you guys have ever heard, I want to be born again Christian, right? If you've heard that before, that's what this is talking about. Regeneration, born again, it's the same word, same phrase, same concept. And now there's some confusion with this concept of being a born again Christian because some people would love to tell you how you can be born again and give you a step-by-step -step process and say, here's what you do, then you do this, and, you just, and then you can be born again. If you do these things, you do these three steps, these four steps, these five things, whatever, you can be born again. But as you look at regeneration and at how the Holy Spirit works to give us a heart of flesh, remember that's what Ezekiel 36 said? You realize all the emphasis is on the work of the Holy Spirit apart from our efforts. 
So you're at your catechism at question number 93. Scroll down to question number 95. Look down at question number 95 there. That question is, what is regeneration? What is regeneration? Well, regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit by which he removes our dead heart and gives us a living heart. It's the same language of Ezekiel 36. Thus, we are born again. The Holy Spirit, at the moment of regeneration, permanently indwells every believer, uniting them to Christ. And so at its root, how does the Holy Spirit enter in? He enters whomever he wishes. It's not about us getting him in. It's about God saving us. God, the Holy Spirit, regenerating a dead heart to make it a living heart. Ephesians 2 is super clear. If you want to read the beginning of Ephesians 2, we are all born dead in sin, and we need something drastic to happen, and that drastic thing is regeneration because dead men don't do anything. Go to the graveyard there, and you're not going to talk to the dead men in the grave and expect them to answer back, right? See, we are spiritually dead, and we need the Spirit to make us alive or to regenerate us to respond in any way to God. Titus 3.5 is particularly clear on this point. God saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness or by the things that we did to get the Holy Spirit in, but according to God's own mercy, by the washing, that language of Ezekiel 36 again, of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Well, you read a verse like that and you might say, wow, God, the Holy Spirit is so powerful. I'm sure he could do this work of regeneration with, with anyone that he wishes at any time at any place, maybe even before they hear the gospel message. Scroll down to question number 96. Does hearing the word of God always precede or come before regeneration? Absolutely yes. The word of God is the means by which the Holy Spirit regenerates sinful people. The Holy Spirit makes the reading and especially the preaching of the word an effective means of converting, convicting, convincing and com comforting. See, always connect those things in your mind. Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures is used in the work of Holy Spirit regeneration. But to cement the concept of regeneration being a work of God, turn to John chapter 3. And we're going to look at what Jesus says in John chapter 3. It's a dark, late night, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness because he seems to be afraid of what the other Pharisees will think of him. And he comes to Jesus because he thinks that Jesus actually might be the Messiah, at the very least a prophet. And Jesus tells him the only way to come to God is to be born again. And what's our word for that? Regeneration, right? And so Nicodemus asked a silly question, John 3, verse 4. Read with me. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, obviously not. 
I'm talking about spiritual new birth. Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that's Ezekiel 36 language, cleansing of sin and spirit, new birth, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus makes it very clear. The world falls into two camps. You're either born of the flesh and stay in the flesh, or you're born of the Spirit. And then Jesus gives a marvelous illustration to help Nicodemus get how to tell that the Holy Spirit is giving him new life. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Remember the double meaning of the word spirit in Hebrew? Wind, breath. Jesus says you can't control the wind just like you can't control the Spirit. You can't even see the wind, but you can sure see the effects of the wind. So it is with the Holy Spirit. He moves where he wishes. He regenerates those whomever he wishes. But you can also see the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit after he's regenerated a heart. And what are some of the most obvious effects of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration? Our next point up there, conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. Turn to John chapter 16. You're in John 3, move a little bit to John chapter 16. Later, as Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, he speaks again of the permanent indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And he says he's going to send the helper or the Holy Spirit to them. He calls them this, this helper. And then he says this in John 16, verse 8 and 9. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. So listen, you want to know if the Holy Spirit is working? There's conviction of sin. What God calls sin, people start to see as sin. If God the Holy Spirit dwells with us, we are not comfortable with obvious and ongoing sin in our lives. We're not comfortable rejecting portions of the Bible we find socially concerning. We're not comfortable with our own secret sins. So the first evidence that God, the Holy Spirit, is working is conviction of sin. And then, and then there's repentance. That's our next point up there. There's repentance as well. Repentance, of course, is a turning away from sin towards what is right. It's what Christians do regularly when we're convicted of sin. We don't hold on to sin or we don't say, oh yeah, I'm convicted of sin. Oh well, I'm just going to keep on doing it. No, you're convicted of sin and you say, I need to get rid of that sin. I need to turn. I need to go a different direction here. We don't hold on to sin. We don't hide sin. We don't pretend like sin doesn't happen. We repent. We turn from sin and reorient our lives towards following Christ because we trust that what Christ did on the cross is the only thing I need to be right with God. And so our last point, we have faith. We have faith. You know, we're coming up on the most important week of the Christian calendar. 
this week, we celebrate the final week of Jesus' life. Today is the day that almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey as a king coming in peace, fulfilling prophecy. The crowds hailed him as Messiah. But as the week progressed and he wasn't giving the people what they wanted, as he wasn't giving them all the physical blessings and deliverances that they craved, as he didn't give them what they imagined to be their best life now, they turned, which of course was all part of God's plan. And on Friday of this week, as the Passover lambs were being slain in the Temple Mount, Jesus was crucified a short distance away. The Lamb of God endured not just the pain and the physical suffering of hanging on the cross and dying by crucifixion, but he endured God's wrath poured out for the sins of the world. He was suffering and was punished as a substitute in our place. And that shows us very clearly of the holiness of God, the absolute perfections of God, and the need to punish every single sin. You see, because that lie that you said yesterday or that little um, kind of outburst of anger you had this morning in the car right here, whatever it is that happened in some way that you've sinned, Jesus was crucified and the wrath of God was poured out on his son for that sin, no matter how minor you think it is. And so when we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we're reminded of the holiness and the perfections of God and that nothing imperfect can get into God and thus we're reminded that we need to be cleansed. And when we're reminded we need to be cleansed, we are humbled because we recognize our own need for a Savior. And this week we also celebrate that Jesus didn't stay dead in the tomb, but on Sunday he rose from the grave. He rose victorious over sin and death to seal that his labor of love on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, for for my sins, was effective. He rose so that we could know for certain that his substitute sacrifice was sufficient to deal with sin once and for all. He rose to give us hope For not only can we be forgiven of sin before a holy and perfect and just God, but that we can enter his presence and have the blessed hope of the redeemed and eternal life with him too. Now to see the Holy Spirit work in your life is to see that this message, this gospel message is gloriously clear in your mind and that it is an increasingly precious message in your life. That this gospel message is our only hope for all of life. It's the only way to live a truly meaningful life. If you actually want to turn from sin, if you actually want to hate sin and recognize the sin that you have, if you actually want to give up living for your own glory, living for what you think will make you happy, and you insist on aiming for what gives God glory, then that is a wonderful evidence that God the Holy Spirit is working in your life. Because most who hear this gospel message will see it as quaint at best, offensive or dangerous at worst. That Jesus is the only way to be right with God, the only way to get to heaven, is not an easy message in our pluralistic, try to make everyone feel good about themselves world. 
So God, the Holy Spirit, has to do a work in our hearts for this to make sense, for conviction of our own sin, for a desire to repent, and a desire to trust in Christ alone. And so we pray with Paul in 2 Timothy 2.25, we ask that God may perhaps grant repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So how does the Holy Spirit get in? Always by the hearing of the word then regenerating a heart, then conviction of sin and repentance and turning away from living for yourself and trusting in Christ alone. Well, there's one final and short question we need to ask. How can you tell the Holy Spirit is working in you? Well, apart from conviction of sin, repentance, and faith, the things we just talked about, all those things happen as soon as the Holy Spirit works in your life. There's an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that we all should see. Sanctification. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. That word sanctification sounds like a Christianese word, a, a big word. It's not. It simply means our gradual growing in righteousness, our gradual growing in Christ-likeness. You see, the fruit of a redeemed life, a life that has been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of God at work should be obvious. Not perfect, but obvious. And so Paul says at the end of Romans 8, verse 4, Christians are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They're those who live regularly with God, the Holy Spirit, walking, evidencing the fruit of the Spirit. Certainly, there is nothing that we do to invite the Holy Spirit. We do not prepare our heart. We can't clean up our lives to welcome him in easier. We just simply listen to the gospel. And if we respond with conviction of sin, repentance, and faith, then it's likely the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart. And an ongoing manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work is that you want to work hard to honor him. You want to glorify God. Your desires begin to change. You want to set your minds on things that honor him above self. You want to get serious about self-control, about fighting sin, about learning to find joy in God. And so Paul tells us Christians set our minds on the things that honor God, on the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So, beloved, I hope you see it isn't showy signs, it isn't incredible dreams, visions, or voices that prove the Holy Spirit is at work. It's a little more vanilla than that. You can tell the Holy Spirit is working in you based on where you set the desires of your heart, based on his clear and obvious work in your life to grow towards the fear of God and towards Christ-likeness. As we close, I want you to listen to how Christians thought and sung about the Holy Spirit almost 200 years ago by a hymn titled The Spirit of God by George Crawley. He wrote, Spirit of God, who dwells within my heart, wean it from sin. Through all its pulses move, 
Stoop to my weakness, mighty as you are, and make my love, uh, make me love you as I ought to love. I ask no dream, no prophetic ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay, no angel visit, no opening skies, but take the dimness of my soul away. Teach me to feel that you are always nigh. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear, to check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh. Teach me the patience of unceasing prayer. I love how grounded and rooted in the scriptures that this vision of the Holy Spirit and his work are. My prayer for us is that we would all learn to cherish what God the Holy Spirit tells us, what his indwelling presence looks like, and learn to set our minds on him to help us love God as we ought to love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we've been able to study your word and to consider the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who are faithful to walk in the ways of the Spirit, to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, to immerse ourselves in the words of the Spirit preserved in Scripture. Lord, help us to not look for the ecstatic signs of the Spirit as if those are the proof that we've been waiting for. Help us instead to pursue a life of obedience and faithfulness to you. Lord, help us, Lord, to honor and glorify you above ourselves. We thank you for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit that works through your word in our dead hearts to make us new. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.